Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Cameron. I'm Jack Llewellyn, and I'm happy to be with you again. Before we get started, I want to wish everyone a very, very happy 4th of July. Almost a long weekend. Hopefully, it's fun and relaxing for everyone. And please, let's try to keep it safe for everyone, especially for the kids out there. If you have listened on a regular basis to this show, you know the last couple of weeks have been a little bit discombobulated, and we missed a couple of episodes that we normally would do. I'm here to tell you that work issues, vacations, conferences, conventions, health issues, all of that is behind us, and going forward, we're going to be back to our every week Sunday podcast episode. So look forward to that. The last time we all spoke, I talked a lot about 881 Lope de Vega. And as a quick recap, Lope de Vega, of course, is the house in a residential area of Guadalajara. It had once been owned by Ruben Zuno Arce, sold through a middleman to Rafael Caracantero. It is the location from which the abductors of Agent Camarena likely left to go to the American consulate. And it's also the residence where Agent Camarena was likely taken immediately after the abduction. In our discussion about Lope de Vega, we talked about some of the issues surrounding it. We talked about questions about the ownership the sales process, and I read directly from trial transcript to give the arguments for and against, um, you know, who owned it, both from the prosecution and from the defense. We also talked a little bit about the forensic evidence found at Lope de Vega and a couple other issues with respect to Lope de Vega. Now, Going forward, we're going to come back to Lope de Vega because the residents there and its involvement figures very prominently in a number of hypotheticals I have, hypothetical theories on how we can try to piece together some of the evidence that doesn't seem to fit together. But those theories and hypotheticals are for a later day. But when we were talking about the forensic testimony and the forensic evidence from Lope de Vega, we had to mention FBI agent Michael P. Malone. Agent Malone was the FBI agent who analyzed and testified about a lot of the important forensic evidence retrieved from Lope de Vega. As we're going to discuss, numerous issues have arisen with respect to that testimony, that whole category of testimony, and the FBI analysts who were in charge of what we'll call the hair and fibers section of the FBI. We're going to also show that it wasn't the Camarena case driving the questions about this testimony. It actually was the other way around. So we're going to look at three different things. We're going to start by looking at the 
testimony from Agent Malone and others and the investigations into it and really the dramatic impact that those investigations and reanalyses have had. We're then going to read directly from a report prepared by or, or a paper written by Agent Malone himself talking about the forensics at Lope de Vega. And then we're going to talk about the impact that the discrediting of some of Agent Malone's testimony has had on Tamarina defendants and the impact that it should have had on other defendants. So let's go back to Agent Malone. So Agent Malone, again, special agent with the FBI, he had been a member of, a prominent member of the Heron Fibers group at one point in time in the 1995-96 range, there became a number of questions with respect to the Heron Fiber analysis. And there was an Inspector General report for the Department of Justice. In 1997, that first report, remember, this is only the first report, essentially discredited the work of Agent Malone and 13 other analysts finding that they had made false forensic reports and performed inaccurate tests. The Inspector General's report specifically said Malone's faulty analysis and scientifically unsupportable testimony contributed to the conviction of an innocent defendant and at least five other convictions that were later reversed. We're going to see it's much worse than that as we go forward. In 2009, the National Academy of Science issued a report on forensic science titled Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States, a Path Forward. In that report, the National Academy of Science deemed microscopic hair comparison analysis to be, quote, highly unreliable, close quote. And keep that in mind, 2009 National Academy of Science Microscopic hair comparison analysis is highly unreliable. We end up um, with a number of different reports, and the Washington Post did a series of investigations and articles with respect to this issue with hair and fiber analysis. The Washington Post at one point reported that the Department of Justice and FBI formally admitted that the majority of FBI forensic forensic hair analysts provided flawed testimony and false evidence against criminal defendants for nearly three decades. Now listen to this. With the advent of DNA testing, the FBI has discovered that their own forensic examiners gave erroneous testimony in more than 95% of cases that have been reviewed. Due to the fact that FBI analysts provided scientifically invalid testimony for decades, numerous innocent convicts have been exonerated and released. Here are just a few of these examples I want to give you. 
after serving 22 years for rape and robbery, Kirk L. Odom was officially exonerated in July 2012 when DNA evidence discredited FBI Special Agent Myron Schulberg's hair analysis testimony. Um, Asante Tribble was exonerated also after spending 28 years, 28 years in prison for murder. DNA testing later revealed that FBI Special Agent James Hilverta had overstated his credibility and offered false testimony against Tribble. In July 2013, the Innocence Project and National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers announced an agreement with the Justice Department and the FBI to review over 2,500 criminal cases involving FBI microscopic hair analysis between 1972 and 1999. A Washington Post article that talked about the first chunk of those investigations reported that the FBI completed reviews of 342 of those cases. Out of those 342, 268 trials involved hair evidence used against defendants. FBI examiners reportedly provided flawed testimony in 257 out of those 268 trials. Peter Neufeld, who is a co-founder of the Innocence Project, says we need an exhaustive investigation that looks at how the FBI, state governments that relied on examiners trained by the FBI and the courts allowed this to happen and why it wasn't stopped much sooner. The Innocence Project said that of the first 310 wrongful wrongful convictions overturned by DNA evidence, 72 of those first 310 involved faulty hair evidence. A couple more examples. Um, In December 2009, a Donald E. Gates was released from prison and exonerated after the DNA evidence proved that the hair and semen found on the victim's body did not belong to Gates. FBI Special Agent Michael Malone's false testimony and flawed hair analysis resulted in Gates' conviction for a rape and murder that he did not commit, and he served 28 years in prison. Cleveland Wright also served 28 years in prison for murder. Hair forensic examiners had testified against Wright, but DNA testing revealed that the hair found inside the killer's stocking mask did not belong to Wright. And as I mentioned earlier, FBI examiners whose work is under review or was under review, including agents Malone, Hilverda, and Schulberg, fought nearly 1,000 state and local crime lab analysts to testify using the same methods. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's just crazy. Crazy. I mean, I don't know. If you're at all like me, you know, one or two people being falsely put in prison for bad testimony from anyone, 
let alone from FBI special agents, is is a tragedy. But this is, you know, this is epic proportions. I thought about whether I should put this in here or not, but I'm going to anyways. Here's what's amazing. So the the report comes out in 1997, right? That's the first Inspector General's report. Says Malone did bad things. Lots of other people did bad things. Was Agent Malone fired? No, don't be silly. He kept his job. He was reassigned, but he kept his job until 1999 when he retired. (laughs) But, but, in a third review of FBI labs done by the Inspector General's office, the Justice Department Inspector General found out that Agent Malone had been performing background check investigations for the FBI as an active contract employee of the FBI since 2002. Um, Once this report came out, the FBI said that Agent Malone's association with with the FBI was terminated. But if that's not great, um, (laughs) just an example of, of, you know, how bureaucracies work and, and things. All right. Let's talk about the Camarena case. In 1989, keep that date in mind. In 1989, Michael Malone, Agent Malone, publishes an article in the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin dated September 1989. The report is titled The Enrique Camarena Case, A Forensic Nightmare. And there's a lot in here that's not particularly germane to what we're talking about. But I want you to indulge me for just a minute because I want to go through and there's about a page here of his words on the forensic analysis at Lope de Vega itself. That's the most important part. Not everything he says, I think, is 100% true. Um, And we could quibble about details, but I just want you, I'm going to read it to you because I want you to hear it in his own words. Okay, so we start. During During April 1985, the MFJP informed the DEA that they believed they had located the residence where Special Agent Camarena and Captain Zavala had been held. The FBI forensic team was immediately dispatched to Guadalajara. However, they were not allowed to proceed to the residence located at 881 Lope de Vega until an MFJP forensic team had processed the residence and had removed all of the obvious evidence. The DEA was also informed that since the abduction of Special Agent Camarena, all of the interior walls had been painted, the entire residence had recently been cleaned, and that a group of MFJP officers were presently occupying and thereby contaminating the residence. Excuse me, one sec. 
All right. Um, on the first day of, after the arrival of the FBI forensic team, they surveyed and began a crime scene search of the residence and surrounding grounds. <clears throat> the residence consists of a large two-story structure with a swimming pool, covered patio, aviary, and tennis court surrounded by a common wall. The most logical place to hold a prisoner at the lo- this location would be in the small outbuilding located to the rear of the main residence. This outbuilding, designated as a guest house on an, an attached map, which I think um, many of you have seen, consisted of a smaller room carpeted by a beige rug with an adjoining bathroom. The entire room and bathroom were processed for hairs, fibers, and latent fingerprints. The single door into this room was made of steel and reinforced by iron bars. It was ultimately determined by means of testimony and forensic evidence that several individuals interrogated and tortured Special Agent Camry in this room. In addition, a locked bedroom located on the second floor of the main house was also processed, and the bed linens were removed from a single bed. No one carpet samples were taken from every room in the residence. A beige VW Atlantic, which fit the general description of the smaller vehicle noted by the person who witnessed Special Agent Camarena's abduction, was parked under a car park at the rear of the residence. The VW Atlantic was also processed for hairs, fibers, and fingerprints. On the second day, a thorough ground search was conducted. As FBI forensic team members were walking around the tennis courts, they caught a glimpse of something blue under one of the drains. Upon closer inspection, it appeared to be a folded license plate. At the bottom of the drain, or a folded license plate at the bottom of the drain, sorry. However, a higher, heavy iron gate covered the drain and prevented the plate's immediate retrieval. When one of the FBI agents returned to the main house to ask the MFJP officers for a crowbar, they became extremely curious and followed the agent as he returned empty-handed to the tennis courts. By this time, a second agent had managed to remove the grate by using a heavy wire coat hanger. The license plate was retrieved, unfolded, and photographed. The MFJP officers, all of whom were now at the tennis court, became upset at this discovery, and one of them immediately contacted his superior at MFJP headquarters, who ordered them to secure the license plate until the assistant premier commandante arrived on the scene. After his arrival, approximately 20 minutes later, he seized the license plate and would not allow the Americans to conduct any further searches. However, by this time, Five very large plastic bags bags of evidence had been recovered and were placed in the rear of a DEA truck. The evidence was quickly transported to the DEA vault in the U.S. consulate. After negotiations between the United States and Mexico, the MFJP did allow a second final search of the residence. On June 24, 1985, a forensic team returned and processed the four remaining rooms on the first floor of the main house. Okay. So that's his own words on the forensic investigation. We note a couple of important things, I think. 
We note that certain evidence was clearly taken prior to the DEA and FBI getting into Lope de Vega. We already knew that. We note also that MFJP was around during the time of this uh, forensic or investigation and, and the obtaining of the forensic evidence, notwithstanding whatever queening had been done, and you could take that in, in both ways of the term queen, uh, the FBI and DA recovered five, quote, very large plastic bags of evidence, close quote. So there was, a, you know, a lot to be processed and done. How does this relate to the Camarena case? Well, in 1988, the first trial took place. That's the one with Rene Verdugo and others. And at the time that, that this, you know, this article from Malone is written, that's the only case that, that had proceeded. So I want to tell you, I want to read, this is much, much shorter, but I want to read to you what he says they found okay, and he testified about. He says, several types of forensic evidence were used to asp- associate Special Agent Camarena with 881 Lope de Vega. And, and, and let me just go back. Remember what... The National Association of Sciences, you know, remember what happened in all these analysis with respect to hair fibers. Here's what Agent Malone says he testified to in that trial. And I submit to you that that's what he testified in subsequent trials. So he says again, several types of forensic evidence were used to associate Special Agent Camarena with 881 Lope de Vega. Forcibly removed head hairs found in the guest house and bedroom number four in the VW Atlantic and two types of polyester rug fibers, a dark, sorry, rose-colored fiber and a light-colored fiber. Fabric evidence was also presented, which demonstrated similarities of color, composition, construction, and design between Special Agent Camarena's burial sheet and the two pillowcases were retrieved from two of the bedrooms. Based on this evidence associating Special Agent Camarena with 881 Lope de Vega, the FBI laboratory examiner was able to testify that Special Agent Camarena was at the residence as well as in the VW Atlantic, that he had been in a position such that his head hairs were forcibly removed. Captain Alfredo Zavala was also found to be associated with the guest house at 881 Lope de Vega, et cetera, et cetera. So you have that testimony, right? And then what's not in here is you have testimony that tied certain defendants in Camarena trials to Lope de Vega. Hair testimony tying those defendants to Lope de Vega. And those are the ones we're going to talk about now. So we're going to to talk about three. Three representative examples here. 
Juan Ramon Mata Ballesteros. Everybody remembers Mata, right? So Mata was originally charged with participating in the kidnapping, but not the murder of Agent Camarena. There were basically, and remember, he's at trial with Ruben Zuno Arce and others in the first Zuno trial. So the basis for some of the charges against Mata came from Hector Cervantes Santos, who, as you remember, was also heavily involved in testifying against Ruben Zuno Arce. Cervantes testified that Mata was present when the Camarena kidnapping was discussed. And the second basis was Michael Malone's testimony that hair and fiber evidence tied Mata to the house where Camarena was held. Now, we've talked about Cervantes before, right? Cervantes recanted, unrecanted, re-recanted, you know. Um, And so his testimony was deemed pretty much unreliable. In 2014, the Department of Justice Inspector General reports second report came out with respect to Malone's forensic methods and Mata filed for a new trial again. And in 2017, a federal judge vacated Mata's convictions on the kidnapping charges and ordered a new trial. In December 2018, the prosecution announced that it would drop the kidnapping charges. Keep in mind that Mata was already serving a life sentence without parole for drug smuggling, and he's currently in a federal penitentiary medical facility in Springfield, Missouri. We also then have Rene Verdugo, and this goes back to the question of, you know, which one, which was the the, the dog and which was the tail? 17 years elapsed, according to Rene Verdugo's attorneys, before prosecutors informed Verdugo and his attorneys that the testimony linking him to a hair found at Lope de Vega exceeded, quote, the limits of science. He'd been in prison for 32 years. Here's what his lawyer said in a court filing in 2018. Virtually every step of the way, the government has disregarded both law and its ethical standards of professional conduct in its zeal to make an example of Rene Verdugo. In 2018, his convictions were thrown out. In late 2018, federal prosecutors elected not to retry Verdugo, allowed him to plead guilty to a reduced charge, and sent him back to Mexico, where he resides today. Then we also have... Juan Jose Bernabe Ramirez, who spent three decades in prison for crimes and convictions related to the Camarena case. Um, He filed a motion in 2019 requesting that his life sentence be vacated because of the false testimony given by Agent Malone during his 1990 trial, which again was the Zuno one trial. Um, the court granted the motion in um, 2020. 
Bernabe Ramirez pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact and to conspiracy to commit racketeering activity. He was sentenced to time served, and he was um, almost immediately taken to El Paso and um, pushed across the bridge into Mexico and officially deported, according to ICE records. Okay? So, defendants exonerated or at least convictions um, overturned as a result of Malone's evidence. Now, I will tell you, the DEA hates it, hates it if you say they did not want to retry these defendants or they could not retry them. Their assertion is it was in the interest of justice. They had already served enough time. Etc. Mata was going to be in jail anyways. It was a good use of judicial resources, etc. It was not because they could not test, uh, have retried them and convicted them. Okay. I want to read to you one last thing that Agent Malone said in that 1989 report. And remember, all through this, you can get different impressions from him. It seems... In, in this report or this paper, you know, from 1989, he seems like a zealous advocate, like he believes in what he's doing. Um, but he's also making himself look really good in this, you know, oh, my God, the forensics was so terrible, but we figured it out. Um, then he makes this conclusion talking about the trial. And this is something that I want you to pay attention to. He says, however... In many instances, detailed trial testimony overcame the limitations of such evidence, and eventually, almost all of the evidence introduced at the trial made a tremendous impact on the outcome of this proceeding. So, what do we know? We know that Verdugo wasn't tried by himself. We know that... Mata and Bernabe Ramirez weren't tried by themselves. There were others there. We know that forensic testimony was used in the second Zuno trial. And the impact of Agent Malone's testimony should not be thought of as limited to those defendants that were tied to Lope de Vega as a result of that testimony. If you sat through the Zuno trials, if you sat through Verdugo's trial, you would have seen the government putting on one person after another to talk about the cartel, how bad the cartel was. And then you get this forensics testimony. Excuse me. Here's what we found at Lope de Vega. Of course, Agent Camarino's there. Of course, Rene Verdugo was there. Of course, Mata Ballesteros was there. And it had a big impact. And there were other testimonies and witnesses that had big impacts. But those impacts were not limited to the defendants, again, that were tied to Lope de Vega. 
It gave the government credibility. Our witnesses say he went to Lope de Vega. Our witnesses say Mata Ballesteros was at Lope de Vega. And you know what? The forensic evidence supports that, so believe our witnesses. I'm here to tell you that in my personal opinion, and again, I'm biased. I know I'm biased. I sat there next to Rubens and Arce for two trials. Of course I'm biased. But this testimony of dubious scientific validity had a huge impact. Okay, I, I'll get off my soapbox now because I think that, that you understand um, my point and the thoughts. But I wanted to go through this both to get an understanding of what the, what the issues were with the testimony, how it came up, and what its impact was. And we're going to draw on that later on. Remember I told you about these hypotheticals we're going to talk about, these theories a lot of what we're doing the last few episodes and the next couple of episodes are all going to tie into that. And we're going to bring it together in a way in which you're either going to say, geez, Jack's got some creative thoughts or Jack is psychotic. And and maybe there's a, a, a bit of gray area in there too. All right. That is Cartel's Conspiracy as a Camarena for today. Newsletter comes out shortly after this. Um, look for it. I think it's really cool. I love putting it together. If you aren't subscribed to the newsletter, LlewellynWriting at gmail.com. Just send me your, your email address and I'll put you on. Look for some new things on the YouTube channel. Got a couple of new things coming up. Just transpired over the last week or so. And then one last plug. KUS or KNUS 710 AM in Denver. If you go to their website and look for the June 29th um, episodes of the Stephen Tubbs show, hour one on that show was uh, me in studio talking to Stephen Tubbs. Hour two was Jaime Kirkendall talking about his book and other things. Look it up if you want to. I think it, they were both interesting. I know I had a blast doing it. Uh, and again, that's all. Thanks again. Happy 4th of July. We'll talk to you next week.